Psalmist writes, It's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. To show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Let's join together to sing praise to our God with hymn number 25. Stand up and bless the Lord, ye people of his choice. Hymn 25. I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Let's hear the word of God together. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, having these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he have appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who be in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he have by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? 
but unto a son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, have anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Again, we take our hymn book and we sing to God's praise 253. The head that once was crowned with thorns, is crowned with glory now. Hymn 253. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all these glorious hymns which speak of your sovereignty and of your cross, your love, your work, your mercy and compassion towards men and women and boys and girls. We thank you that you are God who is great and glorious one who is high and majestic, who is glorious in all his attributes, a God who is gracious and kind 
and long-suffering. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that great salvation he purchased upon Calvary's cross. And as we just sung that hymn, Lord, we've been reminded that he was once crowned with thorns. And they spat in his face, they plucked his cheeks, and they slapped him in the face and said, prophesy now who attacked you. We thank you that he now wears a royal diadem. He sits at the Father's right hand, and he is victorious and all-glorious and majestic in the work of salvation for his people. We thank you that he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our service. And we, as it were, would cast down our crowns before his throne tonight, lost in wonder, love and praise at such a Redeemer. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't worship a God who is made of wood or stone, but a God who is alive, ever-present, who understands our situations, a God who has compassion, has feelings, a God who is kind and merciful, a God who has reached out from heaven itself with the blessing of salvation. We pray again, Lord, tonight for any <clears throat> that were with us this Lord's morning who are strangers to grace, that you speak to their hearts and to their minds. Any, Lord, who be listening, who are strangers that may come to realize the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be their saviour, and to be their redeemer. We thank you, Lord, that you are willing to accept all who call upon your name. So we pray, Lord, that you would draw sinners to yourself, that irresistible, redeeming grace, that it may be manifest in our midst, in our church, in its congregation, amongst your people. We thank you, Father, that you are saving a people, you have redeemed the people, and the elects are being drawn in from the four corners of this world, even this day. And so, Lord, we pray for the preaching of the gospel in churches locally and nationally and around the world, that many souls will respond to the gospel call. Lord, we pray that you bring glory to your name, with sinners crying out for repentance, and they would walk in faith and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that, as you said, you would build your church. And we live in days, Lord, where in our own land, in our own vicinity, we feel that the church has been rejected. It's been marginalized. But, Lord, we we call upon you to build your church, for it is your church. It's your possession, purchased with blood, And we pray, Lord, that you would bring honour to your name and glory to your name through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Halsham. We pray, Lord, that you would bless your people richly. Those, Lord, who feel cast down due to their concerns of health, of anxieties, of fear in this present day and age, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage your people to press on and to be faithful, and to endure, Lord, the times in which we live in. We pray, Lord, for your church worldwide, for the persecuted church. We pray for the church in Asia, particularly, Lord, tonight for the church in India, undergoing great persecution and deprivation as the government seeks to shut churches and to stop the preaching of the gospel. We pray, Lord, there may be a turning of the hearts and minds of that nation to the true and to the living God. May the gods of Hinduism be cast down and and ground into dust and the true God be manifested in that nation there of India. We pray for friends we know personally that you would encourage them and help them and be their all at this time. May they see you, Lord, providing daily for their needs and supplying those needs with grace and mercy. We ask, Father, for your church in Sri Lanka. We pray for your people there and ask again a like blessing upon them. Difficult days, many are passing through due to 
economic situation and through the oppression of Buddhism and Hinduism. We pray, Lord, for faithful men to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, to stand firm and to be an example to the flocks that you set them over. May they see much blessing, Lord, for their ministries amongst the widow and amongst the orphan and amongst the children. We pray, Lord, to prosper that work and bring glory to your name. For those, Lord, who are incarcerated in prison for their faith, we pray, Lord, you would give them succor and help. They may know the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, as they languish in prison for the cause of truth, that you bless their souls even this night. May they be given much hope. May they be given much patience, Lord, in their persecutions. Speak to those, Lord, who, who persecute, those, Lord, who would seek to undermine the truth of God. May their eyes be opened. May they see Jesus in all his glory and splendor as your servants suffer for him. We do again, Lord, pray for one another in this fellowship, for those, Lord, who are going through difficult days to strengthen them, to uphold them, for those, Lord, who are facing procedures this day and through this week, Lord, we ask that they may be helped and comforted and that all their fears and anxieties may be relieved, for they know that their God is with them. So, Lord, we pray for a tangible experience for your people to be helped in their sufferings, we pray. Lord, as we will shortly turn to your word, we pray that you give us eyes and light to understand it, not only to understand, but to apply it to our hearts and to our Christian walk. We pray, Lord, that the word of God may be powerful and effective. It may encourage us and build us up in the most precious and holy faith. So, Lord, we look to you to come amongst us and to bless us and to encourage us that your smile may be upon us and that all we do here will be to your praise and to your glory. And we ask these things with forgiveness of every sin. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Third praise, please, is 321. God has spoken by his prophets, spoken his unchanging word. 321. <coughs>
I invite you again to turn to the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> With God's help, I would hope to have a series on the book of Hebrews through his coming year, as the Lord gives help and strength. I fear it's, um, it's a time reminder for us in the days in which we live. It's a book which encourages us and exhorts us to be faithful in this evil and perverse generation. It's a book which really speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a book which should encourage the people of God, as it was designed to encourage those first readers of it. Hebrews, in a sense, is is the key to the Old Testament for New Testament believers, for Gentiles like you and I. It speaks of many things which the Jews held dearly and which were their, their faith, their traditions, and they held dearly to their temple and to their priesthood and to all that spoke of God. So with God's help, I envisage to go through this as fast or as slow as the Lord leads. There's no rush. There's no rush as we study God's word. It's profitable. And as this word was written to the Hebrews, it's also written for our instruction and for our learning. So the question is, first of all, who wrote the book of Hebrews? It's an old chestnut, if you're a pastor or been a pastor or know these things, there's much debate about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some suggest it may have even been Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, we, we don't know. Maybe we do know. A lot of uh, the old divines, John Owen Beamer and John Gill and uh, Arthur Pink, which suggests, that, as we have in our head in here, uh, the, the epistle of Paul, the apostle, to the Hebrews. And they, they give some explanation to their, to their claim. The first being is, if you'd like to turn in to the book, book of, first book of Peter, the first book of Peter, we read that Peter wrote there in chapter 1. And verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the knowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. And the general consensus is that Peter is writing to the Jews who have been scattered, they fled Jerusalem and they've been scattered to these provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. And he's writing to encourage them because of the persecution that they have and were suffering. If you turn over to the next book of Peter, 2 Peter <coughs> and uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. <coughs> We read there, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So again, he's still writing to those Jews who've been scattered, who fled Jerusalem during days of persecution. And then he gives an interesting note in in verse 15 of the same chapter. And he says, to those who are scattered, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, have written unto you. And the old divines would say that is indication that as Peter had written to the Jews scattered, so also had Paul written to the Hebrews. And Pink says, if the book of Hebrews is not what Paul had wrote, 
where is that manuscript? There are arguments for that argument, and there are arguments for other writers. But I'm, I'm going to go with the old tradition that Paul was the writer to the Hebrew church. It's important we understand the situation of the Christians there um, in the first church there in Jerusalem. And they, they faced much persecution because they were a great church. You know, if you want to turn, there's going to be a lot of turning tonight, so I hope your fingers are active and alive. If you would turn to um, Acts 21 and verse 20. We read these words. And this is where Paul has come to Jerusalem. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are zealous of the law. So we may have that impression in our hearts and minds that the church in Jerusalem was small, insignificant. But here we're told... There are many thousands of the Jews there which believe. And they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They accepted that he was the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And many, many thousands believed that Jesus was the expected Christ. But they were also zealous of the law. They had mixed Christianity with Judaism. There was that mixture and we know that um, the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, insisted that any Christian children born to a family should be circumcised. And Paul, the apostle, stood against that. And it caused a great division in the church. And back in Acts there, even to the point there was a riot in the temple precincts. And Paul was thrown out from the temple with four of his companions. So there were many who believed, but they were zealous of the law. And verse 21 says, and, and, they, and they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the custom. In other words, they were zealous for the law, particularly the ceremonial law. That's what they wanted to uphold. We must enter into their dilemma because these Jews have been taught for generations that Jerusalem was the center of worship. This is God's throne. This where God had appointed that worship should be given to the true and living God. The Jews had this sense of the glory of God, unlike the Gentiles around them who were pagans, they worshipped idols made of wood and stone, and the Jews worshipped the true God. And for them to be told that this has been superseded by Christian belief was difficult for them. It's hard for them to understand and to accept. So there were those, particularly of the Pharisee sect, who persisted that the law should be maintained. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to encourage these Christians with this great dilemma. All that we've held dear, we're now being asked to set to one side. All that our fathers have taught us, all that the prophets have taught us, of Moses and Aaron and Joshua, all the great events of, of the history of Israel, we've been told that these things are set to one side with the coming of Christ. And so they were in a great dilemma. We know this book was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. We know that they suffered much for their faith. Many had lost their belongings, their possessions. Many had lost family members who had been sawn asunder, who had been martyred for the cause of truth. But to, to put away the, the actual worship of God in the temple was so difficult and hard for them to comprehend. So, God in his mercy appoints his apostle to write 
this epistle to the Hebrews, to the Jews. And we know that because he says in verse 1, God who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto our fathers. The fathers being the prophets and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other prophets we know of our Old Testament. God has spoken to them in times past. But in his last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the letter is addressed to the Jews, addressed to encourage them for better things, because their hearts were set on things which were earthly, of time, of sense. And the writer to the Hebrews wants them to consider those things which are heavenly and glorious and above this world, things which are sure and steadfast. What the Jews had back in the Old Testament were types and shadows. And what the writer to the Hebrews wants them to understand and to know is that what they have now is substance. It's sure. It's foundational. It's immovable. We have the real thing. We don't depend on shadows. We have the reality. And that reality is Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. And, and this book wants those Hebrews, and God wants us to understand that, that Christ is central. He is the center of all faith, of the Word of God. He is the center. He is that which God has glorified and manifested through his word, the only begotten Son of God. Their circumstances were hard. There was a strong temptation to go back. Maybe some of us feel that at times, a strong temptation to go back, to go back to the world to go back to those things which we enjoyed before we were born again. And there's a strong temptation for them to abandon the faith. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I ask the question, have I got this right? Am I really, am I really on the right path to heaven? Some of these things come across us quite suddenly and Satan attacks us and tempts us to, to abandon the faith. That comes over me at times. We need to be honest. And this book, book of Hebrews, is designed to strengthen them and to encourage them to stand fast and to stand on Christ alone. And so he writes this book and he writes to them to encourage them to build up their faith and, and to press on. Weary, yet pursuing. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm weary. I am weary, but pursuing. Because there is a goal. There's heaven. There's glory. Just like Gideon and his friends, they were weary from the battle. Yet, they still pursued. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging these believers to do. This is what God is encouraging us to do. Particularly in these days of small things. Difficult days. There's a temptation, is there not, to maybe slip away and go somewhere else? That's a big temptation. There's more people more going on. God wants us to stand fast and to hold the line, as it were. To hold the line for our neighbours to see that there is still a place where God's people come to worship at Golden Road. God has a plan. He has a purpose for us. As he had for these Jews. And he encourages them as I say, to stand fast and, and to endure as good soldiers.
So that the whole theme of his book is Christ-centered. He is the beginning and end of the book of Hebrews. He is the key to all the Old Testament. It's only through him we have an understanding of what the temple and its utensils and its buildings, its fabrics represented. It's only through him that we understand the priesthood and of all the other glorious things that the Old Testament reveals in shadow about him. He is the, the fullness, he is, he is the splendor of the Old Testament. And just a way of introduction, the apostle wants them to know how superior Christ is. He is superior over the prophets. We see that in our reading tonight, in verses 1 to 3. God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Notice this. God spoke. It wasn't a figment of their imagination. Again, that's a theme which comes through the book of Hebrews. He quotes scriptures and scripture and more scripture. God has said. God has spoken. God has broken in to men's history. And he has spoken. And he's spoken about judgment and condemnation. He's spoken about grace and mercy and love and compassion. He has spoken of a promised saviour, the one to come. God has spoken. And we believe that. It's central to our belief. God has spoken. God has a voice. And God, friends, continues to speak through the scriptures. That's why the scriptures are precious to us. They are God's word. They're God-breathed. And the apostle says, in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, have in these last days spoken unto us by his son. By his son. Right there, right at the beginning, he's declaring the sonship of Jesus Christ the blessed second person of the Holy Trinity. He have in his last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he have appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who be in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And right there, at the beginning of this book of Hebrews, we see God, the Son, atoning for the sins of his people. We're right back where we were this morning. He's, but he had purged our sins. I like that illustration Bradley gave us a couple of months ago of of that purging, of purging that, that, that mask for, against chemical warfare. You breathe into it and you breathe out all the, all the air into so that you have clean air coming in, which has been filtered. And that's what Christ has done for us. He's purged them all away. He's, he's cleansed us. There's that cleansing. And that's the wonder of the gospel, friends, is it not? And when he had by himself... He had no help. There's none other could join in the work of salvation. There's a work solely achieved by Christ himself. And he purged our sins. And when he had purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And the apostle wants the Hebrews to know that God the Son has spoken. And he's spoken words of life. Words of liberty, words of freedom. And he sat down at God's right hand. So we see here that the, the Son is, is greater than the prophets. And then he goes on to speak of angels. The Jews had a, a big thing about angels. They're always talking about angels. You read some Jewish writings. Angels were a big thing in their, in their belief system. 
And so the apostle again says that Christ is greater than the angels. And that goes from, uh, from verse 4 down to chapter 2 and verse 18. And it speaks of, of the angels and that Christ is much better, being much better, verse 4, being made so much better than the angels as he hath an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Christ is, is greater than the angels. He's, he's greater in, in every respect. In, verses, in chapter 3, verse 1 to 19, he speaks of Moses and of Moses being subordinate to Christ. Christ is greater than Moses. And it goes on to Joshua, it goes through to Aaron, it goes through into the rituals in chapter 7, 19 to 10 and 30 plus goes on to speak about Old Testament saints, that Christ is, is greater than all these. He wants them to know that Christ is the reality of all that's gone before, all that was in shadow, in type. They now have the reality. He speaks in many exalting ways to, to the Hebrews. He tells them that they have better things. In Hebrews 1, 4, he says, being made so much better than the angels. Christ is, is better than the angels. He's, he's better. He's all glorious. And 7, 19, he speaks there of a better hope. For the Lord made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope that by which we drew nigh unto God. We have a better hope than the Jews, friends. And the sad thing is, there are Jews who still hold on to their traditions and their ceremonies. But we have a better hope. We have a better prospect. These, these things, these things are, are truly, truly wonderful. And not only that, he says in chapter 7, by... By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Better hope, better testament. If you turn to eight, chapter 8, verse 6, we have a better covenant. Greater promises through the eternal Son of God. And then in chapter 9, in verse 23, it was therefore necessary that... The patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice, friends. We have a sacrifice who purges away our sins. The Jews, their sacrifice just covered their sin. We have a sacrifice which purged them and cleanses us. A once-for-all sacrifice. The Jews, day and night, sacrificed. Beast upon the altar. Just a type and a shadow of a better sacrifice. And Christ Jesus is that better sacrifice. We read also in chapter 10, verse 34. For ye had compassion on me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. They've been dispossessed of their homes and of their goods. There was a political uncertainty at the time of the writing of the Hebrews come to say that there were gangs of soldiers robbing good and just people. And that was all through the nation of Israel. And they were dispossessed, they were spoiled of all their goods. And yet, he reminds them that these things are nothing. Why? Because we have a better and enduring substance. Where? In heaven. Friend, where is your treasure tonight? Is it in, on earth? Or is it in heaven? The Jews were very concerned, were they not, as they still are, about their homeland. 
It was precious to him. It was God-given. And 11 and 16, we read, But now they desire a better country. That is unheavenly. Heavenly. All we see around us will turn to dust. But that heavenly country will endure. And they longed for it. We longed for that. Not only that, he speaks of a better resurrection. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. That they might obtain a better resurrection. You see what he's, he's doing for these people. He's bringing their focus upon those things in Christ which are, are better and are sustainable. And again, in 11.40, he says, God having provided some better things for us. God has better things for us. We may not see it. We may not feel it at the present moment. But he has better things for us. That they, without us, should not be made perfect. You see what he's doing? You see what he's doing to us tonight? He wants us to focus on on those better things that we have in Christ Jesus. He speaks of these these better things. You know these things already. I'm just bringing these to your remembrance. Seven times he mentions great, great things. What does he say in Hebrews Two and chapter three. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation is great. It's glorious in the eyes of God. It's God planned. It's God breathed. And how shall we escape? This is what we say to them. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? There's no other salvation to be found in any other scheme or religious system. It's only through Christ. And it's a great salvation. If I was to ask you tonight to speak of your salvation, surely you would say, it's great. Because we have a great Savior. Again in Hebrews 4.14, he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, a great high priest, it appears at the time when the book of Hebrews was written, there had been a change of the high priest. And the high priest at that time was a Sadducee. Didn't believe in the resurrection. He was corrupt, as most of them seem to have been. They were greedy for power and for wealth and prestige and honor. But not this great high priest. See, there with that, we have a, a great high priest. And is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. That's what he's saying to us. Hold fast. Be steadfast. Immovable. For we have a great high priest who cannot be corrupted. These these things are, are wonderful. They're glorious. And the apostle wants the people of God to know this for themselves. This, this priest, look what he says there in 5.6. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever. Who? Jesus. Thou art a priest forever. Forever after the order of Melchizedek. The prince of Salem. That, that priest who, who appears from nowhere and... He seems to disappear as well. As quickly as he comes and goes, no one knows his lineage, where he comes from. And he's our Christ. He's of the same order as Melchizedek. He's a great high priest, a priest full of grace, love, and mercy. And again, he's called in verse 10, called of God and high priest after the order of of Melchizedek, called of God, not appointed by men. He has the ultimate authority. He's called and appointed by God, the high priest forever. Again, they re- 
He repeats this three times. How many times have we said that from his pulpit? When God repeats, says something once, we should listen. Twice, we should prick our ears up. And when he mentions it three times, it's important. And here he is again. Verse 20 of 6. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's glorious. He's glorious in his appearance and in his apparel. And the Jews of the day, they were reluctant to give up the ceremonial and the glory of a temple worship. And because they followed the Christ, there was a time when they were accepted within the temple. But it appeared when this priesthood changed, their circumstances changed, and they were ejected from a tabernacle, from a temple, and from the synagogues. They were seen as outcasts. They were seen as heathen, unfit for the courts of God. And yet, the apostle wants to encourage them that this high priest is greater than all the priests that have been in the past. And so, the apostle encourages their heart to press on and to be faithful. Great things that God has done for his people. He's great in his promises, great in his providential workings with us. And Christ is our great high priest. And where does our high priest reside now? Again, we've already read it. <clears throat> in one, chapter 1 and verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. His work is accomplished. His work is finished. The work of the tab- of tabernacle and of the temple was never finished. We see no seat for the priest to rest they labored, they sacrificed day and night. But our great high priest purged our sins and is now sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is our saviour. This is our God. Again, he underlines that fact in verse 13 of chapter 1. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? He never did. He never did. It's only his beloved son who has that privilege to sit at God's right hand. And again, he underlines it. Now the things which we have spoken This is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's where he is tonight, interceding for you and for your situation and your circumstances and for your family and for your neighbours. As we bring our prayers, he perfects them and he's sat at the right hand, that place of power and authority of kingship. And he is sat. In 8, we see this. In 9-11, we see this also. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. This is our saviour. He's that great high priest. He's greater than all that's gone before. And he's encouraging the Hebrews not to give up hope, but to press and pursue. That's what we're called to. Despite how we feel, what we think, God has better things for us. 
He calls us in these days of small things to be faithful and to persevere. These are hard days. They're difficult days. But God is with us. And if God is for us, friends, who can be against us? We need to be knitted stronger to one another. And it's through the scriptures which bind us together. It's not our social programs or our events. It's the word of God. And as we come under the authority of the word of God, as we come together to pray, these are the things which bind the people of God together. We have better things. We have glorious things to look forward to. So he encourages these Christians and he would encourage us to be faithful in this day and in this generation. May the Lord help us in the coming days to expand upon this glorious book by his grace and favour. Let's sing our closing hymn, please, which is number 258, 258. Before the throne of God I have a strong and perfect plea. Hymn end that before the throne of God I have a strong and a perfect plea we thank you that we have a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me we bless you our saviour we thank you for this Lord's day
We thank you for one another. We pray, Lord, that you send us from this place by the power of your spirit to live and to work to your praise and to your glory. For now and evermore. Amen.